listening to a Westpac Wire podcast, westpacwire.com.au. When most of us were just starting to wrap our heads around what a coronavirus even was, Rebecca Scott had already turned her mind to the likelihood a pandemic would drive up the number of people who'd need emergency food relief, which she predicted would create a serious strain on the food relief system. As one of Australia's leading social entrepreneurs, in true form, Rebecca threw herself into this challenge, quickly galvanising almost 20 food-based not-for-profits, including her own hospitality social enterprise, Street, to create what she calls a dirt-to-doorstep food system. The project, now known as Moving Feast, has gone on to provide around 100,000 meals to Victoria's most vulnerable and has also helped to keep many others employed through the pandemic. I'm Emma Foster from Westpac Choir and I'm joined today by Rebecca Scott, who is currently locked down in Melbourne but still remarkably has a smile on her face. Beck, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure, Emma. Lovely to be here. And Beck, you're also recently appointed to the Business Advisory Task Force set up by the City of Melbourne to drive the post-pandemic recovery. And I'm really keen to talk to you about that, given the enormity of the rebuild. But first, let's talk about Moving Feast. Can we start by looking at the problem that Moving Feast aims to solve, in particular, this really devastating fact that a growing number of people in Australia are essentially going hungry? Is that what you're seeing on the ground? And what kind of numbers are we talking about? Look, I guess overall, Moving Feast has both kind of a short, medium and long term goals, but certainly it mobilised quickly around the pointy end of the pandemic where um, food insecurity was, was going to become a bigger problem. And I guess what seemed really clear to me is that we were, we were about to have this situation where there was going to be more food insecurity, you know, for, for groups at exactly the time when a whole bunch of food social enterprises would, would be losing their customer bases. Uh, in our case, obviously, you know, we run a whole bunch of corporate cafes, but, but if corporates are closed, you don't have cafes that are operating. So it seemed crazy that we'd have all of these hospitality professionals and all of these incredible kitchens and knowledge uh, sitting empty at a time when there was there was kind of a real pressure and a real need. So what we did really quickly, I guess, is mobilise, um, you know, a whole bunch of social enterprise peers. And we commissioned a piece of research right at the very beginning just to give ourselves a sense of where the acute need was going to be. And that piece of research, I guess, showed us not only you know, the cohort groups that we could focus our, our work um, on, but also the, the areas within Melbourne where those communities would be. So once we had kind of the locations and we also had the cohort groups, we then could build our own database of the community organisations that were working with those groups in those locations and then be able to really accurately kind of pinpoint where we would put that support. Probably the thing that really surprised me early on was the lack of the lack of kind of cultural overlay or you know thinking around culture around the existing food relief system. The the current kind of food relief system is very um, reliant, I guess, on food donations. 
And so, you know, food that gets donated across into a food bank or food, re you know, rescued food that comes from, you know, say large food markets and stuff. So there's often, you know, those food relief agencies often don't get a lot of choice in, in what they're able to, to give to community organisations. If you've got a large number of people who have either, you know, might want halal meals or kosher meals or have, or, or be used to eating certain types of food and now are just relying on this bigger food relief system, how would we try and get choice and, and dignity and, and an understanding that food is more than just nutrition? Food is, is very much kind of how we connect to, to culture as well. We often see a situation where our food relief system is providing highly processed um, food that isn't nutritious, that you would call it stomach filler, but it actually is, is not helping us long term with, you know, with health. Um, so, you know, we might be, we might be filling people's stomach, but longer term, we're creating diabetes and obesity through the food that we're, that, that we're giving. So probably what we did very early to, to distinguish some of the stuff, um, the food and also the produce boxes that we were delivering was very much to be thinking about the different cultures in, in our community, who would be, you know, who would be really facing food insecurity and how do we tailor our meals, um, and our produce boxes to them. So just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, obviously, when we had the, the tower lockdowns of the public housing estates here in Melbourne that I think most Australians would have seen, you know, we were able to create very targeted types of produce boxes. So a more kind of African style root vegetable, sweet potatoes, okra sort of food where, you know, or you could have got a more stir fry type of produce box that would have had a lot more kind of Asian style vegetables. And so just giving families a level of choice um, has been really important to us. So throughout the pandemic, have you been seeing the level of food insecurity um, actually grow? So we're hearing certainly anecdotally mm. um, that there, there are issues. Certainly what we do know from the research that we, that we commissioned really um, early is that there's, you know, there's a number of kind of underlying drivers of food insecurity and some really specific groups who are, who are particularly vulnerable and that we know that they're, they're normally vulnerable, but, but that would be exacerbated. So, I mean, it makes, you know, wouldn't be any surprise that low-income families are some of those. Um, any people that have already been, you know, unemployed for an extended period of time, but, but obviously this pandemic is throwing many more people into food insecurity. And it would be um, people who uh, are in those really dire financial circumstances and unable to access economic relief, such as Job Seeker and Job Keeper, those programs? Certainly what we know, um, both kind of internally in our own organisations, but also what we're seeing, you know, reported as well, we've created during this pandemic some, some real vulnerabilities for communities, particularly culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Those refugee and migrant communities, you know, communities of international students, for example, those groups that don't have Australian citizenship, so aren't, you know, aren't eligible for JobKeeper and JobSeeker, I think are just extraordinarily vulnerable because they, they already were vulnerable, but, but as soon as you don't have access to those same safety nets in a community, um, you know, that the rest of the population has, you exacerbate that. Examples, you know, a street, I mean, for, our, for us as an organisation, 
um, we normally have about 60% of the young people who come through street coming from refugee and migrant communities. But then there are other social enterprises in the food system whose whole, you know, solely their beneficiaries would be um, you know, asylum seekers and refugees. So like the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, mm -hmm. Free to Feed, you know, both really well-known Melbourne social enterprises where, you know, through the work they're doing for Moving Feast, they're working directly with, with their own beneficiaries. So it wasn't like we even had to go out to other communities to, to find people who needed it. We, our organisations were full of, of, our, you know, of our own people that needed that support. So, Beck, let's dive into how Moving Feast actually works and, and this concept of a dirt-to-doorstep food system. Can you just explain a little bit about how that works? It's not that complicated, even though there's quite a few tentacles, but essentially what we're doing is lining up a whole heap of social enterprises into an integrated system, uh, anywhere from, you know, the social enterprise farms who would be planting seeds and seedlings to, to grow for the, you know, for the food relief effort, through to you know the social enterprise kitchens and caterers and food production organizations who would then be making meals um, there would be then the social enterprises who would be doing things like pick and packing food boxes um, there would be the social enterprises that are delivering all of those meals to those community groups and and um, organizations that needed those meals um, and then what we also have is a, is a beautiful little team that, that's doing all of the, um, I guess you could call it kind of the well-being, uh, well-being kind of resources, because what we know is that food is a really good vehicle to do community development. So we've had a team of youth workers, social workers and psychologists writing well-being materials that accompanies those meals, for example. So it might be, you know, how to, how to stay, you know, stay sane and stay fit during lockdown. Those, those sorts of materials, short, sharp materials that we've then been working with um, multicultural communities to have those translated into a whole heap of the major language groups um, in Victoria. So, and then, you know, so all of those things across a supply chain linked together by, you know, some, some logic in the kind of systems and processes that we're using. At the very start of the pandemic, uh, we started planting masses of seeds and seedlings into social enterprise farms. It was um, something so, like, so wasn't it, 760,000 seeds? We, we bought 760,000 seeds. I think there's seven sites now that we're growing at. So we got seeds, you know, seeds and seedlings into all of those sites. Some of those sites were existing farms, um, but in some cases we, we were opening up new areas. So a really nice example would be the Collingwood Children's Farm, you know, really strong, you know, well-known Melbourne institution. Um, but they started planting, you know, market garden style into to ground that they had that hadn't previously been used. And, you know, so I, I was down there recently and there was just this sea of bok choy in every, you know, every direction you could, you could look, you could just see mountains of Asian greens just growing across this field. Right. Okay. So the, the farms where the produce is grown, they are scattered across Melbourne suburbs. Yes. So we have about uh, eight different locations where farming activity is happening. Some of those will be almost pocket-sized farms. Some of them will be, you know, decent-sized farms and have acres and acres. And what we're trying to do is, over time, bring more and more farming land into our activity. So, so essentially, you know, all of the growing activity 
We've got a, you know, all of that is being um, kind of synchronized. So we know, you know, when we're planting stuff, we're not, not all just randomly planting things. We're, we're planting, you know, we're buying seeds collectively. We're, we're um, having seedlings grown collectively. We're putting, you know, we're managing the crops. So, so there's a level of kind of coordination of, of all the growing activity. All the, you know, all the farmers and horticulturalists across all of the different farms are working together in a, you know, in their own kind of growing system. But then the same goes with all of us who are, have got kitchens and catering arms and, you know, loads of chefs and, and people like that. You know, we're all synchronising our work. So, hey, if you're making a Malaysian curry, we're making, you know, we're making a, an African dish. So we're not making the same thing. So, so we're, we're really, I guess, curating and, and coordinating all of the different things that are happening to make sure that it's, you know, if you're a beneficiary or a customer of ours, it's very seamless what you're getting, but there's different activity happening in all different directions. Right. And so the produce is across everything from, say, yeah. Bok, bok choy through to potatoes through to yep. what type of other produce are you Whatever's growing? in season. So this our first harvest, we had, from memory, something like 56 different um, types of vegetables that we were growing across the system and, and a huge amount of cultural diversity in, in what we were growing. So, so just the logistics of, you know, getting the right information and the right produce coming through across all of it, you know, there's, there's a real, um, there's a really, you know, large amount of work in that kind of back-end coordination function that's happening um, that, that's primarily being done by my team at Street, um, just to make sure that it, it, it operates as a system rather than lots of kind of siloed organisations. I think what was really terrific is I, I guess we had been doing that for enough months to then when we got the, you know, the phone call regarding the, the tower lockdown, we were very well placed to be able to be agile. You know, within, I think within hours, we had procured five tonnes of produce. Um, we had had 1,700 halal meals over there within hours. And, and by the end of that first week, we'd done 12,000 meals and and 1,000 kind of, um, you know, culturally appropriate food boxes. So, so I think we're getting, I guess, as we're getting, you know, we're doing more and more together, we're getting a bit more match fit. You know, we, we're getting used to working together and you know who to call and we're putting the systems and processes around ourselves to, to make that system kind of work, uh, you know, smoothly. Okay. And so just talking about that, um, that dreadful time when the public housing tower blocks were shut down pretty much without notice. And I, I think everybody around Australia and the world um, watch that. So how did it come to pass that Moving Feast was asked to come in to help with that? I think it took everyone by surprise. So certainly uh, it happened through a couple of kind of speed dial conversations with uh, government officials, so both in Department of Health and Human Services. And I don't think, you know, they had lined up, you know, contractors and food service providers that could provide culturally appropriate meals. So, of course, there were existing food relief agencies there, um, but they, they, they weren't, um, you know, they, they didn't have a large amount of choice probably when it came to halal and culturally appropriate meals. So, really, it was that call that we got very quickly. Uh, I, I think the lockdown happened on a Saturday afternoon from memory and it was that a speed dial that we got and said what have you got and and we we had um we happened to have had a whole batch of halal meals that we could get across there within hours 
but then they said, well, how many could you be producing across, you know, across your group across this week? And so we just, we just hustled unbelievably fast. And that combination of, because we had the, the growers and we had the, you know, the, the produce um, and we had all those kitchens that were there within, within a matter of hours, what we'd done is kind of configured. We'd, we'd, um, standardized all of food sizes, the labeling, all of the things that need to happen from a, from a protocol, from, you know, safety and, you know, food safety and handling um, sort of perspective. But we, we'd been doing most of that through the pandemic. So the speed at which we could mobilize that, um, you know, was, was really exciting. You know, what it showed, it started to show potential, I guess, of, of, you know, when you start to, to link these things together, you know, what kind of scale that you can start to get. Okay, and in terms of um, the funding model behind that sits behind Moving Feast, how is the project funded? I mean, is there a fee that is charged for the food provided or do you rely mainly on corporate philanthropy, government funding? How does that work? Look, at the front end, it's been very, very much a, a group hug from philanthropy. So most of our work during this first six months uh, has been very philanthropically funded. Um, having said that, we're now, you know, both the, the work that we did for the tower lockdown and then say the work that we're doing this week for, for the next couple of weeks with, with the aged care facility that's in lockdown, that's contracted work. We have also had some community organisations uh, who have bought meals off us. But the majority, certainly at the front end, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but it would be well over 90% has been philanthropically funded at the front at this first part. Having said that, we're now moving into, I think, kind of the, the work and the thinking around the next phases, which are kind of at the tail end of the pandemic or certainly kind of longer system approaches. And what I, because all of us are social enterprises, we're used to building business models around you know around our work and trying to build sustainable models not just kind of band-aids so we're certainly as a system saying well what is the what are the kind of commercial projects that we're doing together that build us either um, a revenue stream that allows us to either cross subsidize the free meals that we're giving away or we build a model, you know, it might be a model that we, you know, buy one, give one sort of model. Now, there's some things I think that that's highly appropriate for. So I think we'll end up with a, a number of different business models where we've got a revenue stream that we can bring in that either helps fund that other work or in some cases, I think we might end up with some food retail as well. So in the future, I'm, I'm super excited about some of those business opportunities uh, that we'll start to create that will be far longer term. Another vital role of social enterprises in, in general and, and especially the ones involved in the Moving Feast project uh, are all around the creation of employment and training opportunities particularly for people uh, who are experiencing disadvantage. I wondered how many people across the Moving Feast system um, are being able to be employed through the project and, and have you actually had to increase numbers potentially um, as you've scaled up? This is one of the areas that I am really excited about with the potential of, of um, this major project. 
because I think we're just kind of tip of the iceberg right now and, and where that employment is happening and those opportunities are happening, it's where we already, you know, where they're core to our business model. So once again, if I take the example of the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, you know, if you go into their kitchens, they're, you know, in their kitchens, they might be creating meals for the tower lockdown, you know, um, residents, but the people who are making those meals are, you know, are refugees and migrants from those same communities who are getting employment in those kitchens as part of this work and they would, wouldn't have been eligible for, you know, job keeper or job seeker. So there's a large amount of employment that's happening out of this um, because our kitchens are still open. But where I think um, there's real opportunities in the future, and this is work, this is the next phase of work that we're actually starting now, it's where we bring the whole system together and we start to look at what are all of the other training and employment opportunities that open up and arise because we're now an integrated network. So what would it look like? You know, some of those social enterprises would have seen themselves more as environmental enterprises and their, their social enterprise model would not have included training and employment pathways. Whereas when you, you know, when you put them alongside those of us who, who are, that is our you know, impact model, they say, hey, well, we would love to have a bunch of your, you know, of your trainees on our farms. Um, what, you know, how, how would we get people onto our farms? If you could do the support of them, we would be very happily be the workplace for, um, you know, for your different beneficiary groups. So the next piece of work um, that we're doing now is, is mapping what we think are all the potential training and employment pathways across the whole system. And this first phase, it's really only, it's a very metro Melbourne based system kind of, you know, in these first six months. But there, there's, you know, my guess is probably another couple of hundred food social enterprises across the state who are, who are itching to be part of this. And then when you start to connect all of that up into one great big integrated system and say, what are all the pathways across and between these organisations? I think that starts to become quite game changing. And just this week, I, I've sent information out across the team because um, I was really excited when the Climate Council put out their clean jobs plan because that clean jobs plan, you know, estimated that there's probably 76,000 uh, jobs that could be created that would help the economy and help, you know, help us with climate change. And looking through those numbers in that plan this last week, uh, they estimate that probably about a third of those jobs are, are very low skilled. So you don't have, you know, they're not high tech jobs like you know, hydrogen power or renewable energy or those, um, they're, they're quite um, low entry barrier kind of roles, which are very much suited to our types of enterprises. And those jobs, you know, one of the key areas that they put for that was ecosystem regeneration and urban food systems. So, so looking through their modelling, I couldn't agree more with what they've pointed out with the real opportunities that are there, particularly, I think, if we start to get state, federal and local governments um, really supercharging this sort of work and, and doing a co-investment with us. So where I'd love us to get to, I'd love us to get to a point where we were seeing um, social enterprises as being the, the key, you know, key group to help drive some of this. Um, corporates uh, and philanthropics coming to the table and saying yes, this aligns with what we want to be supporting, um, and then and then government kind of doing the co-investment. Now, if I say you know if I give an example of a corporate, if I take an organisation like Westpac, I would say well hey, 
Um, you, you know, I, I know your, your sites in Melbourne, you've got some amazing corporate properties. Um, what would it look like to put some, to start to build an urban food system uh, on your, on the top of your roof? We know that you've got a rooftop, it's this big. We know that you could, you could apply for some funding for environmental upgrades to your building. Let's start to have, you know, the, every rooftop across the whole city have being part of a great big urban food bowl. I might go up to Westpac, you know, Westpac on Collins Street, and I might have my olive grove up there. And I might go further down the road onto another corporate office tower and I might have my citrus grove down there. And actually when you do that across the whole of the city, um, you start to have a very, very big, rich food bowl. So that would be an example of where a corporate might say, this makes sense for, for, from an environmental perspective. The city of Melbourne says, this makes sense for a greening our city. Yes, we'll co-invest. And then philanthropy says, hey, climate stuff, you know, and, and environmental work is, is what we're supporting or training employment pathways into these, you know, into this urban farm we want to support. Now you've got a really interesting co-investment model that could really supercharge this work. And I'm sure that that must be one of the ideas that you kind of bring to the table of the Bringing Back Melbourne Better task force um, that you were asked by the Lord Mayor to join last month. It's a really big advisory group, actually, seriously eminent people. So around 30 or so leaders, I believe, from everything from business to finance through to the arts, restaurants, retail, news. And of course, the hat that you bring to the table is social enterprise. The task force, I think, has met a few times now. I'm just wondering if you could tell us what the aims of that group are. Yeah, look, it, it, they're a seriously kick-ass bunch of people. So some of my absolute heroes are on, um, are on that task force, which I feel very privileged to, to be part of. What I guess the city, you know, the, the city is not going to be the same as it was pre-pandemic. You know, the city... Uh, it's got something like a hundred billion, you know, the, the local city economy is like a hundred billion dollars, you know, annually. It's, you know, serious amount of grant. Obviously our city is well known for as a, you know, cultural center, um, you know, incredible, um, you know, vibrant startup environment in the city. Um, the other thing is we've got a you know, large amount of arts, culture, um, institutions and and also a, a large amount of universities you know very very close in the city and we just know that all of that stuff is is struggling you know like like any actually capital city but but we're really as a city we're up against the wall and you know as as most um other you know, people from other cities would know that you know melbourne has been very proud to say that it's the world's most livable city we've had that title I think something like five out of the last seven years. Um, so it's a city that's been very proud of its livability, but the livability falls over in a pandemic when you can't, you know, you, you can't access most of the reasons you would want to be in a city. You can't go to those cultural institutions. You can't go out to cafes and restaurants the way that you did. You know, the public's, you know, the, the public transport system doesn't work the same way. And so what we're doing collectively, I guess, is reimagining the city and understanding that, you know, what, what would this future city look like? And, and one of the things that's been really exciting, I guess, is we've got some people on that committee who have been in, in prominent positions through the last recession. 
So people who who remember what it, what this city was like before it had a laneway culture and before it was a vibrant twenty four hour city, you know, when the when the city was, you know, even twenty years ago, you know, it was tumbleweeds in the heart of the city and there was very little residential. There was certainly commercial centre of the city, but um, but it but it wasn't you know wasn't being lived in uh, in a residential way. It's now a really different city, but. You know the sorts of things that I'm uh, I'm talking about a lot and and bringing to the table is what would it look like if this city became you know a huge urban food bowl? If I look at projects like New York's High Line, you know that beautiful great big garden that that connects parts of the city um, and and makes that city a beautiful promenading city. You know what are those great cities of the world where where you're out promenading through there and it's the combination between you know beautiful gardens, rich cultural experiences you know, an economic activity that happens that's far more street-based. You know, for, for those who have been watching streets, um, I guess, kind of evolution right from day one, you'll know that street started as a food cart out on the street on Federation Square. And it came, you know, our business model recognised that the rest of the world ate on the street. You know, everywhere except Australia has this rich, vibrant street food culture. And, and I just couldn't understand why Melbourne didn't have that same culture because it's so multicultural. But you think about those opportunities, you know, street space and public space and gardens and parks become far more important to all cities post-pandemic. If we know that we need to be distancing far more, you know, that, and whether or not that's the way that we're doing um, the way we're eating, but but also we know cultural institutions are going to need to do a far you know, far more programming out in out in public spaces. So I think we've got this opportunity to to really start to curate all of these experiences where we bring culture and food and green space to create experiences, and not not just experiences where we all have to open up our wallet and and spend money. But what would it look like if, you know, if every single person in this city who wanted their own little patch of land could have their own garden plot? What would it look like if, you know, and you think about the victory gardens that cities and, and you know, nations built during wartime experiences where every part of a city, were, you know, some people were growing, you know, edibles on. What would that look like to do a, to, you know, to do a 2020 version of that where all of a sudden the city became edible and anyone who wanted, a, you know, that little connection to their own food system could have it, but not leaving everyone to, you know, struggle on their own and know, hey, well, what would I plant, you know, what, what do I plant in August? How would you know if you weren't connected and you weren't a gardener? So I'm dreaming of a, a roving green team of a whole heap of young horticulturalists who are all bike based on cargo bikes who rove across the city. We now have large amount of urban gardening infrastructure across the city. Um, we, we build foodscapes. So where we've got both, you know, greening, but we've got a large amount of edibles in all of those, that kind of gardening. And, and you could equally, you know, you know, the green team, you know, is going to be there at lunchtime and you can learn, you know, you can learn some skills in, in urban, you know, urban gardening that you can equally apply, you know, on your balcony or you can be part of a community of, of growers and, and, you know, green thumbs. So there's some of the dreams that I've got, I guess, um, very much, you know, I want this city to be a beautiful edible food bowl. Um, and also, too, not forgetting that the reason Melbourne is where it is, 
is because it was based, you know, it was built on the food bowl of the Kulin nations. Our First Nations people knew that this was the right place for a food bowl. Let's let them lead this work and, and build, you know, the Birrarung Food Bowl 2.0. So sitting on that task force and bringing those views in um, with such a very big group and with a lot of diverse views, what are some of the other kind of ideas that are coming through in that group? There's a lot of uh, the CEOs of a lot of the, the cultural institutions. And so I think everyone is, is having to think about how they start to do programming, uh, whether or not that's music or, you know, arts festivals or performances uh, very much using different spaces. Um, so, you know, we're just not going to go back in any hurry to great big packed theatres of thousands of people all sitting, you know, sitting alongside each other. I saw also um, some discussion about the fact that some of the big office towers, which have pretty much closed their doors at the moment and all of the workers have gone home, that um, some people are, are seeing that that could become more of a kind of permanent change for even the, the office towers in the CBD. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of shrinkage. Now, that hasn't translated through quite yet to um, lots and lots of corporates, you know, saying, hey, we don't want this space anymore. But certainly there's um, certainly the corporates whose cafes that we're running um, none of them are expecting to have their full, you know, workforce back sitting in an office for at least, you know, 18 months. Um, and, and so I think we're, we're likely to see shrinkage over time. But some, you know, some of the corporates are certainly thinking creatively around how might you use some of those spaces. Um, there's a lot of, um, lots of, you know, the more modern office towers, you know, a lot more open spaces, a lot of movement and, and more hot desking style, but that style doesn't work for, you know, for, in a pandemic. So there's a lot more um, having an A team and a B team and you come in and you have your own space and you don't move from there. But what that also means, I think, is the way that we would normally move around a building um, as a as a you know office population is quite different. So you know the cafes that we would normally run within those large corporates, you know the cafes are normally the meeting place, and everyone comes and gathers at those places. Well, that's that's not possible the same sort of way. But there's discussion of you know do some of those corporate office towers get a level of retrofitting and more residential comes into the city. There's a thought that maybe some of those office spaces, you know, you imagine if, you know, a corporate might have 10 floors, you know, currently of a building and now they only need seven. Well, what are those other three floors going to be used for? Do we, do we actually start to get some interesting partnerships where some of those groups that would have, wouldn't have been able to afford to be in the city? I think about a lot of, you know, small startups, a lot of arts, you know, smaller arts organisations, community organisations, all of us have been forced out of the CBD because we just can't afford the rent. But what does it look like almost if you have some of those corporates being almost like the host to more community groups that can co-locate with them? Um, I, I, I'm a plant biologist originally by training and I always think about a city as an ecosystem and and if I think about kind of tall trees in an ecosystem, you know, being being similar to a tall office block, you know, I those epiphytes or those, you know, those, those plants like tree ferns that will be living symbiotically, you know, on that tall tree, that where there's a there's definitely a two way value exchange in that um, in that kind of situation. I kind of think if those 
corporate office towers could become more epiphytic and you've got smaller organizations kind of embedded inside some of those larger corporate office towers. Um, I also think, you know, I, I definitely think it's not just about free rent. I think we could create a real value exchange for those corporates um, being able to get a lot closer to, to the community groups that they support. Uh, but also, you know, hey, with some of those spaces, you know, you look at places, you know, cities like Singapore, for example, and the amount of, you know, um, urban farming that would be happening in high rises right in the heart of the city in a very high tech, you know, robotic farming uh, where whole, you know, now that obviously you can do in a huge amount of growing with LED lights and things like that, you know, wh why couldn't some of those corporate office towers become farms of the future? So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to, 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 to rethink how a city works. Okay, and, and just um, to finish that piece on, on the, um, the task force, do you feel like there will be a sense of momentum and progress that will come out of that? And what can we expect to see as a result of the task force coming together? Look, I hope there is a momentum and, and my sense is that, um, you know, I mean, not all the things that we're suggesting and, and exploring, you know, will get up. But I do think uh, even just the connectivity means that, a, you know, a bunch of these things will get on and build them even if, you know, even if they're not official City of Melbourne projects. So I, I hope um, that certainly, you know, a bunch of those ideas get up, but, I, but I'm very realistic also that at the City of Melbourne, you know, at council level, you know, that council has to make decisions and choose things from a whole heap of, you know, directions that they're getting input and data. Um, but also knowing that they've got their own strategy, you know, strategic directions that they were choosing. But I'm hoping that some of those strategic directions kind of get supercharged. You know, the city already had a goal of going from 20% tree cover, for example, to 40% tree cover uh, over this next decade. Well, you know, I would say, well, make that one of the things that we fast track. And, and not only do we fast track the greening of the city, but actually let's let's do, you know, Paris has a, has a similar goal, but a third of all of its greening is edibles. So why wouldn't we put another target on there and say, hey, yes, we're going to make it a green city, but we're going to make it a green and edible city. And while we're at it, why wouldn't we train and employ hundreds of, you know, young green thumbs who would have otherwise been on the dole queues to be part of that and provide rich training employment opportunities and a future into the green industries of the city. So for me, it's about making sure that we, we tick as many boxes and, and it's, you know, it's transformational work we're doing. It's not just band-aid work. Well, Melbourne is pretty lucky that they've got some thinking going on like you're providing. Uh, one of many, many, many thousands of people, I'm sure, that are lying awake at night dreaming about the future city that we want to live in. <laughs> okay, well, Beck, thank you for all that you do. I'm really hopeful that the positive signs coming out of Victoria's lockdown at the moment are a signal that things are going to get better soon, fingers crossed. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me today and good luck and stay safe. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. Absolute pleasure.